Please be seated. Ezekiel chapter 15, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of the guys coming up the aisles right now and they'll put one in uh, your hand this evening. Please, if you don't own a Bible, we want everybody to own and know the Bible. Please make that one a gift from us to you. We get into chapter 15 of uh, Ezekiel. We have what is known as the parable of the fruitless uh, vine. And, uh, uh, and the Lord begins it here with Ezekiel. And therefore the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? And uh, here he is, he's talking about uh, Jerusalem, talking about the people of Judah. Uh, in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, uh, Israel is likened to a grapevine repeatedly, continually. And one of the reasons is that God raised the nation of Israel up. He raised the bloodline of uh, Abraham up, not supremely to become a great and prosper and materialistic country or to have a great material uh, uh, wealth or any of those things. They, they weren't raised up with the same goals that other nations have. God raised up the nation of Israel in order that they might be an influence for God and, uh, and to be a spiritual influence in the world, uh, the Gentile world. That was the great value. That was the supreme wealth of that, uh, that nation, the supreme purpose of, of the Jews. And uh, they've squandered it all away by uh, de being determined uh, to buy all of the definitions of success and, and uh, value that the Gentile nations held and becoming like that. And they threw off their spiritual heritage and they threw off the one great thing they were called to do in the world, strategically placed to do so. God gave them the land of Canaan, which is the intersection of uh, the three three of the great continents in the world. All traffic in the world traveled through uh, Israel and all of it by design so that the whole world would come into contact with the quality of life, not just the quality of a nation, but the quality of human being that God, uh, Yahweh, the God of the Bible produces. And they threw all of it away to become idolaters like everyone else in the world. And once everybody else in the whole world, once the Jews, once God's people became idolaters like everybody else, it's all idolaters. There's no contrast. There's nothing to convict. There's nothing to show people another way. And that's what they, they threw away. It speaks strongly to us as Christians, as we'll see in a moment. But they, were, they weren't made a great oak tree. They weren't made a great cedar tree. Uh, they were supremely a grapevine in order to bring spiritual fruit into the world that no other group of people had been entrusted to do quite the same thing. And so he speaks to them and he says, Son of man, how is the wood of uh, the vine greater than any other wood? Well, it's not greater than any wo other wood. Have you ever gone to somebody's house and sat in their chair made of grapevines? Or a kitchen table made of grapevines? No, it's useless. Absolutely useless for anything other than the supreme thing that it, it, it is intended to be and intended to produce. And so the grapevine, which is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make any object? It isn't. He said, can, or can man 
men make a peg uh, from it to hang any vessel on. If you have any kind of handling or dealing with uh, a a grapevine, you can't even uh, take it and drill a hole in your wall as you would do in the ancient world and then just put a little peg of it in there to put a heavy pot on. It won't even handle that. Uh, It's it's useless for anything else than what it it was created uh, for. And instead, when it loses, when it, it decides that it wants to be something other than what it's supposed to be, uh, it, it's useless for those things. Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. And the fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. Uh, is it useful for any work? Well, the only thing more useless uh, than a grapevine for uh, making uh, furniture out of it, or anything out of it, is a, a burned grapevine. And that's exactly what Judah is going to become uh, as a result of Babylon invading them and, uh, and Jerusalem as well. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given uh, to, uh, uh, to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will set my face against them, and they shall go Uh, out from one fire, uh, but another fire shall devour them. And then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them, and thus I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. So you see this persistence in unfaithfulness as we go through the book of Ezekiel and you see the degree of God's judgment against them. That is not the kind of judgment or the kind of righteous indignation that God feels towards us when uh, we sin uh, uh, unintentionally, inadvertently, but it's a sin. These people have uh, been engaged in this persistent unfaithfulness for decades, even under the ministry of of Jeremiah. Uh, At least 40 years, his ministry to them, it didn't budge them. These things, these folks are dug down uh, way deep in their, in their sin. And so the, the judgment comes. Uh, God will chasten me. I know that uh, his, uh, uh, he measures the heavens with a span, and I know he's uh, uh, used that span on my backside quite a few times uh, related to when I fall short. He's got me on a very short uh, leash. He doesn't give me uh, any room before there's conviction and a a strong desire to repent of sin. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad he keeps me in that, that kind of a place. He knows how close he's got to keep me uh, to him. And, uh, but, uh, but that isn't the same thing as, as what we're talking about here. This is a very, very deep, protracted, deliberate, arrogant uh, backslide that these people were involved in. I think it does speak to us as Christians Jesus taught that we are uh, the salt of the earth, we're the the light of the world. Jesus said that if the salt loses its saltiness, in other words, us as Christians, if we lose our distinctiveness in the world, then we're good for nothing. It's the same same imagery as what he's using here to speak to the children of Israel. Uh, We lose the distinctiveness, then we're good for nothing. We're not good for what we've been raised up in the body of Christ to be, and that is to be spiritually distinctive and an influence for God in the world. And so he said, it's only good now to be trodden, uh, thrown on the path and trodden down under uh, the foot of, of men.
It is always a great, great mistake in any season in, human, uh, in church history for holiness uh, to be minimized. And, and then uh, for the, the idea that we reach the world by becoming like the world, that that is what God has called us to do. And it, it's always a disaster. And, uh, and, and the, the, uh, those, those are strong moves that are happening within the body of Christ today. And they must be resisted, not just from the pulpit, but they must be resisted in our own hearts. Not one of us has a, should have a single concern in this culture of being too holy or too serious about God or, or uh, too committed to his calling and his purposes uh, in, in this world. It's not something that we need to worry about. The greater temptation, the greater danger is to fall asleep in the midst of all of this and think that God has uh, made us a Christian so that our greatness of our influence is how much material things he gives us or how comfortable our life becomes rather than how spiritually distinctive, morally distinctive our lives are. And uh, so it has a, a, a tremendous application uh, even to us under the new covenant. When we come into chapter 16, it's a lengthy uh, uh, chapter, and it is the... Uh, the uh, parable that the Lord gives that is kind of a parable of Ju- uh, Jerusalem and Judah as an un- uh, adulterous wife. This is one of the most heartbreaking chapters in the entire Bible. I mean, if, you, if we don't just read it with our eyes and our minds, but we really enter into the emotion of it. Uh, and even if we haven't experienced what it is that he's describing here in terms of betrayal, uh, in terms of unfaithfulness, in terms of whatever it might be, to even, even an attempt to try to, to feel what's going on here uh, makes the chapter very, very uh, um, uh, spiritually and emotionally very impacting. I think that it's important for us to realize and one of the great values, there are so many values, you could spend weeks looking at this thing from every conceivable angle. But one of the things that Ezekiel chapter 16 teaches us, and, and that we can be prone to forget in a deep way, in the deepest kind of way, is that in this relationship that we have with God, it, it, there are two people involved in this relationship. And, and, and just as we feel and what we want from the relationship with God and what God is like and, and how he treats us uh, impacts us and just as how we would be in a relationship with somebody else and how what they do impacts us in that relationship, God is also impacted in the relationship. Why he wants a relationship with us, I can't figure it out. But that's the glory of grace. We will never figure it out. We don't deserve it. Uh, he doesn't need it in some kind of a, a necessary th- way there. The whole explanation, the only explanation for this relationship we have with God is that he is love and he loves us and, 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 and wants to have a relationship with us. And so how, it, it is hard for us to believe we can understand how emotionally, mentally, spiritually vulnerable we make ourselves in uh, relationships in life, especially in a marital relationship, which is what he's going to be uh, talking about here, physical vulnerability, and, and then to realize that it isn't exactly the same way 
but God uh, has all of those feelings in this relationship that he has uh, with us. And that a betrayal, as they had betrayed him, was deeply uh, hurtful uh, to him. And so uh, we pick it up here in uh, verse 1, and the first 14 verses uh, talk about uh, God's discovery of Judah in Jerusalem and how he makes her, uh, takes her from an orphan to becoming a queen. I don't know where you come from in life, uh, but I come from the wrong side of the tracks and uh, in a very goofy household in, a, in just a weird old thing. Uh, that uh, I, was, I was raised in and my brothers and sisters were raised in. And so uh, to understand what it is to be left as a, potentially a casualty, uh, to know what, I would, uh, uh, what a casualty I would be apart from God's introduction uh, into my life, what it means to be in the low place of life and then to be brought into the experiences that are ours spiritually, physically, emotionally and as a result of being a child of God and, and then as a result of engaging the world, how he opens things up to us. I mean, it's, it's going from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high and that's what he did for them. And again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem, and this is who it's addressed to, to know her abominations, what she has done against me in this relationship. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your birth and nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. When he talks about the, uh, the, uh, the ancestors here, and you think, well, how on the, Abraham didn't come from uh, Amorites and Hittites. He's not talking about the Jewish people, so to speak. He's talking about uh, the, the, uh, the ancestry of the city of Jerusalem. And so, uh, before you were born, before you became Jerusalem, before I made you great, uh, you were, uh, you know, just the, the, uh, the, uh, the owned by and, and uh, a part of the Amorites and your mother a Hittite. And as for your nativity, on the day that you were born, uh, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. And so God uh, describes uh, Jerusalem, describes the children of Israel, how he found uh, uh, her and uh, made her great. And so here you have God finding her and as a, a child, as we're going to see in a moment, just left out in an open field. Imagine seeing a baby out in an open field and her cord hasn't been cut. I mean, there she lays in the open field and the placenta is still attached to her. Uh, uh, that's how quickly she's been abandoned, how uh, uh, utterly careless people were uh, toward her. Uh, and so here you were, born, your navel cord was not cut, you were not washed in water uh, to cleanse you, and, and, and she lays there in, 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 in the field with the blood of her birth upon her, the afterbirth uh, all upon her. I know there's a, that white goop, and I, I don't know what the technical name is for it, the vernix or something like that. And, uh, but none, hadn't even, nobody had even taken the time to wash any of that uh, off of her. 
and you were not rubbed with salt. And that's what they would do in those days. A child would be born and rubbed with salt as kind of an antibacterial uh, thing for them not to catch some kind of a disease or pick up some kind of a bacteria, nor were you wrapped in swaddling cloths. These were the very basic things that would be done to a child when they were born. None of those things were done uh, to her. No, I pitied you uh, to do any of these things for you, to have, uh, ha- to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field where uh, when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And so you picture this baby, uh, placenta, uh, umbilical cord, covered in the birth uh, fluids, lying out, uh, completely vulnerable, absolutely going to, to die without somebody's intervention. Uh, into uh, her uh, situation and into her life. And then God declared, I mean, this is worse than an orphan. And, and then God said, and when I passed by you, and I saw you struggling in your own blood. I mean, you see the child squirming, attempting to, to survive in the, in, in the harshness of, uh, of the open situation she finds herself in. And I said to you, in your blood, I mean, again, no hope for you, no care for you. Nobody's even taken the time uh, to clean you up. And I saw you and found you in that condition. And I said to you in that condition, live. Yes, and I said to you, in your blood, live. And, the, and God comes in at this point in time, and he gives life to the Jewish people and, uh, and causes them uh, to live when otherwise they would have been uh, utterly destroyed. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, uh, but you were naked and bare. And so uh, here is the imagery again of somebody coming to maturity and, and becoming uh, beautiful. And so God took care of her as she uh, matured into this, uh, this beauty. And when I passed by you again and looked upon you, God said, indeed your time was the time of love. You were of a marrying age. And so I spread my wing over you and I covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord God. And the Lord then takes her and makes uh, Israel uh, his uh, his wife. And that's the imagery of the Old Testament. The relationship between uh, Israel and God was, uh, she was uh, portrayed as the wife, so to speak, of, of God. In the same way, we're declared to be the bride of Christ in the New Testament. That's the imagery that is used. And so, uh, why would he use this imagery? You think you try to get your mind around it, you know, husband and wife and all of this. It's the deepest covenant. It it speaks about the strongest covenant that uh, one can make to another is to commit my life to you, to spend the rest of my life uh, with you out of a motivation of love. And so God enters into this covenant relationship uh, with uh, Israel uh, out of uh, out of uh, out of this love that He has has for her, and then. 
I washed you uh, in water, and yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil, and the, the repetition of I, I washed you. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. And as you go through the imagery that's, that you see here, uh, as he describes, it's so easy. Uh, they say the, the volume of the book testifies of Jesus. All of this is a shadow of what Christ would bring into our lives. And you talk about, then I washed you uh, with water, washed off your blood. I anointed you with oil. When God speaks to her and says, live, that speaks to the fact that they, that he came to our lives and uh, And then when we put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and a spiritual birth occurred within our life, he gave us a life that we would never otherwise know. And then he takes and he anoints us with oil, the Holy Spirit. Israel was clothed in embroidered cloth. We were clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I clothed you with fine linen and, and covered you uh, with silk. I adorned you uh, with ornaments, the Lord uh, said. In other words, as we read this, all that God did for uh, for uh, for Judah and for Jerusalem, all of it pales in comparison to what God has done for us spiritually, our spiritual realities, the things that God has brought into our lives that no one can ever take away from us and makes us richer than the richest person in the world. If we don't have two quarters to rub together and we have the righteousness of Christ and a relationship with God and we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I mean, we're the richest people in the whole world. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown uh, on your uh, head. And how he has adorned us with uh, the character of Christ in, in our lives as he takes us, brings us into this relationship with him, uh, the new covenant based upon the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and then gives us a beauty, that a spiritual beauty that that makes the greatest jewels or ornamentation or the greatest bracelets or chains on our neck to pale in, in comparison. And thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, embroidered cloth and you ate pastry of fine flour and honey and oil and you were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty and, and became a queen. And your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect among, uh, through my splendor, which I had bestowed upon you, says the Lord. I made you into something that caused all of the Gentile world, all of the other nations in the world to look at you and to marvel at the kind of beauty that I brought into your midst as, uh, as, uh, as a people. And, uh, and that was the attitude that 
the, the beholding world uh, saw Israel became famous for, uh, for her beauty. I mean, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah had uh, blessed her, prospered her, uh, protected her. Everybody knew that she was what she was because of her husband, because of her God. And then how she repays all of this love and this grace of God uh, heartbreakingly in uh, verse uh, verse 15. And now you have this bride, you have this queen. uh, Astonishingly, I mean, would you put yourself in the middle of this? You you read the fairy tales when you grow up or you see some kind of a fairy tale theme in a a movie and and you you, you see this almost as a movie within your mind and, and it's just like the worst tragedy that could ever be uh, put on, on the screen. And here you have this queen who has been made great by God and, and uh, owes all that she is, uh, who she is, what she is, entirely uh, to God. And then she reaches a point where uh, she's now going to take all of those things and, uh, and, and, uh, and now hand them over to uh, other nations, other people. And it's going to be represented as spiritual adultery here. And, and God, when, they, when Judah turned and started to worship all of the idols of the other, pe- uh, of the other nations, God viewed that a- as a spiritual adultery being committed uh, ag- against him. And so you trusted in your own uh, beauty. And so now she's not trusting in the Lord. She, she's been made great. She's been made beautiful. She's been made uh, prosperous. And now she's going to take all of the things that God has given her, all the things that God has made her into, and she's going to take it under her control, and now she's going to squander it all away. And, and, uh, and, and this is what happens with a backslider continually where God saves us, he makes us into something great spiritually, he makes us into something beautiful, he even prospers us materially. And then we get to this place where he blesses us and, uh, to such a degree, and then we become convinced that somehow we've done it. That somehow all this that my life has become is because of me. And somehow there's the capacity for blindness in, in our hearts and in our minds to, to be convinced of that. And, and then now to turn away from the God who gave us all of these things and then to take all of this and all that God made us into and all that God has given us and now squander it on idols. Squander it on what everybody else worships in, in the world. And so you trust it in your own beauty. You played the harlot because of your fame. She was beautiful. God had made her beautiful. She was famous. God had made her famous. And then, and, and then you poured out your harlotry on everyone uh, passing by who would have it. She became uh, unfaithful with these idols. And imagine the heartbreak that would go uh, to, uh, to the Lord's heart and all of that. To be left for this... I shouldn't laugh, but I laugh in a, it, incredulous. I mean, God looks and says, I made you into this, and this is who I've been. I'm the only one who could make you into that, and you leave me for these things? You leave me for Molech? You leave me for Baal? You leave me for Ashtoreth? You leave me for these things that just degrade human lives? What a betrayal. What an awful betrayal. 
And so they began to commit this spiritual harlotry. And you took some of your garments and your adorned multicolored high places for yourselves. And you played the harlot on them. Such things that should not happen nor be. And you have taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. And you took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense uh, before all of these, these idols. And also my food, which I gave you, the pastry, of fine flour and oil and honey, which I fed you, you have now set before these idols as sweet incense. And so it was, uh, says the Lord. And moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, uh, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Uh, where uh, Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up by causing them to pass through the fire. And Judah and Jerusalem and the, the people, the Jewish people there, uh, they went so far as to engage in the worship of Molech uh, and, and offered their children and, and tumbled their children into uh, burning pits of flame uh, uh, unto the God of Molech. And, uh, and the children that God had given to them, so to speak, uh, they took and, and went this far in, in, uh, in hurting uh, the, the, the heart uh, of, of the husband. Imagine that. Imagine. I mean, you don't have to imagine it. We see it uh, probably two or three times a year in our newspapers where some husband, some wife takes the children and drives them into some kind of a river, some kind of a, a lake, and the, or drives them off of a cliff, and the children are killed by uh, the one parent. And, and what about the other parent? Imagine the loss and the sense of loss that is experienced by the other parent as a result of it. And God's just trying to give us an inkling of what he feels and this kind of a betrayal uh, that they had uh, brought to him in, in this relationship they were to have with him. And in all of your abomination and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked, bare, uh, struggling in your own blood. And they, they had forgotten how God had found them and what they would still be if God had not entered into our lives. I don't even want to know who I would be or where I would be or what I would be if God had not come into my life when he did. And I think that probably most of you are, are like me and that there are those flashes. I don't dwell on it any length of time. But I know what he pulled me out of, and I know what he saved me into. And I think one of the things that happens in this kind of a place is to lose sight of who and what we are before God ever made us into the beautiful thing that he has made us into, spiritually speaking, and to remember that we would not be any of that if he hadn't invested that. And to realize that the thing that makes us attractive in this world and attractive to other people in many ways is what he has made us into, 
They love what God has made us into. And if we turn from God and those things are gone, they will hate us, even as her, lo- her lovers will turn on her. But it is a good thing to stop and remember every once in a while and, and to remember, this is where I was when I came to know the Lord. And everything that I have, I owe to Him and, and, uh, and and, and would not have uh, otherwise uh, uh, have and, and would remain in, in that condition. So the remembering of the days of our youth before we came to know the Lord is a, a very, very uh, helpful thing. The Bible declares that the Lord, uh, we are the Lord's poema. Uh, that's the Greek word that's used in the book of Ephesians that Paul uses. We are his workmanship is the English word that's translated most often. We are... Paul describes this as a work of art in the hands of the Lord. So when he's talking about embroidery and jewelry and all of this kind of stuff, that imagery in the Old Testament, we are an even more incomparable work of art in the hands uh, of, of the Lord. But we would, would you, would you, have, you and I would never know the quality of life that we know now as a Christian Uh, on our own, lying out in that field covered in our own blood and with our umbilical cord and placenta there. Everything that we are today, uh, we owe to Him. And so it was after all your wickedness. uh, No, and then, uh, yeah, then it was so, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says uh, the Lord, that you also built for yourself a shrine and you made a high place for yourself in every street. You filled Jerusalem with idolatry. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and you multiplied your acts of harlotry. She was, uh, became so promiscuous, she went beyond committing adultery, uh, spiritually speaking with the nations around her, to now becoming an out-and-out uh, whoredom and a prostitute. And you committed harlotry with the Egyptians engaging in, in the worship of their gods, uh, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to wrath. And behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who are ashamed of your lewd behavior. In the course of all of this, we know from the other historical books, as they were engaging in this spiritual harlotry, God was causing sections of the land of Israel and Judah to be carved off by these other nations. He allowed them to attack them and and successfully take land in a way of trying to get them to wake them up and to turn them uh, back to the Lord. But even the Philistines, I mean, when we talk about some, you Philistine, you know, when somebody's just like so debased, and uh, there are no Philistines alive today, so I'm not, uh, you know, offending anyone in the PC environment of today. So I'll probably be fired by the end of the week here uh, somewhere. I'm just kidding. But uh, they even, even the, the Philistines, were, uh, this is the level of, of the degradation, not just the idolatry, but the practices that were associated with the idolatry, it even appalled uh, the Philistines. And moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land uh, of, uh, of the traitor, uh, Chaldea, Babylon. And even there, uh, you were not satisfied. And, and he talks about the Assyrians in verse 28. So the Egyptians, the Assyrian gods, the uh, Babylonian gods. 
And you think about this, you, you, you take a woman, and I want to be careful here not to get too graphic, but you, you take a woman uh, who is married to someone else, and then now she begins to sleep uh, with this person in the neighborhood, and it was a neighborhood they were in, and then another person in the neighborhood, and another person in the neighborhood. And, and you think about what these neighbors are going to think of that marriage, and not, they, not only what they will think about her, but they will also come to conclusions about her husband, that he can't satisfy her, he can't keep her happy. And, and again, spiritually speaking, this would make all of the nations around Israel to look and say, why would we ever follow the God of Israel? They're not satisfied with him. Uh, he can't even keep them satisfied. And so idolatry, backsliding, it all produces the same result in people's lives that watch us. When a Christian backslides, people look and, and then here you've got a backslidden Christian and then you've got, uh, and people see them and those same people have other Christians trying to witness to them about becoming a Christian and they won't open up their mouth but they say, why in the world would I become a Christian when this God can't even satisfy uh, this person? I, you know, I... I drink and get loaded and drunk with uh, people that call themselves Christians. And it does such damage all, all the way around. And how degenerate uh, is your heart, says the Lord, seeing uh, you do all of these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. So now she goes from being an adulterous wife to not only being a harlot, uh, but a harlot who is very experienced. Uh, she is a harlot who, who is, is absolutely hardened now uh, in, in her, her place. And you erected your shrine at the head of every road, and you built uh, your high place in every street, yet you were not like a harlot uh, because you scorned payment. And so here God says you're worse than a harlot. I mean, harlots do what they do for money, uh, uh, but you don't even take money. You pay people to sleep uh, with you. I mean, at least with a harlot. It's not right. But when you, when you look at a prostitute and somebody, a woman is prostituting herself in order to get money uh, to do whatever, I mean, you can understand that. You don't agree with that. Uh, but, but you can understand that. But you would never understand anyone who would go into harlotry and prostitution and refuse payment. There's no necessity to do it, and yet they engage in it. And that's, that's what uh, they had become. You are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to uh, all harlots, but you made uh, your payments to all your lovers and hired them to come to you from all around your harlotry. And you are the opposite of the other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot. You didn't do it out of necessity. Nothing drove you uh, in this. In that you gave payment, but no payment was given to you. And therefore, you are the opposite. In other words, God is saying you've stooped lower than a harlot. You've stooped lower than a, a prostitute in how you're conducting uh, yourself. And the Lord says, all right, you're like uh, this 
uh, and uh, you're flattered by all of these nations that come uh, for your beauty, come for your wealth, all of these kind of things, and, and uh, you think because you engage in the idolatry of the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Chaldeans that they've become uh, your friends. You think they won't turn on you in a dime uh, once they've used you up and thrown you to the side of the road. You're kidding yourself because uh, that's the way the world works. And so he says, now, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because, that's a reason word, your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with your lovers and all your abominable idols. And because of the blood of your children, which you gave to them, surely, I, therefore, I will gather all your lovers uh, with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all uh, uh, those uh, you hated. I will gather them from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them uh, that they may see your uh, nakedness. Talking about the destruction of, uh, of, of Jerusalem, the, the taking of everything that was there. And I will judge you as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged, and I will bring blood upon you in fury and in jealousy. The, under the law of Moses, it was a capital crime to murder. It was also a capital crime to commit adultery. And uh, she had committed a capital crime in this adultery, and God says, I will, you will be judged in, in the Babylonian uh, judgment, as he's been saying all the way through the book of Ezekiel. I will also give you into their hand, and they shall throw down your shrines, break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful uh, jewelry, and leave you naked and bare. Isn't that interesting? Leave you naked and bare. Leave you back in the same condition you were in before you came to know me. And when I made you into something beautiful and you decide to go back to worshiping these things and engaging those things and you leave me for these other gods, what you once were, you will be again, without a doubt. And that's exactly what God said. You'll return to your uh, former condition. And they shall also uh, bring you, uh, bring up as an assembly against you, and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords, and they shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. And I will make you cease playing the harlot, and you shall no longer hire lovers. And so I will lay to rest my fury toward you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be quiet and be angry uh, no more because you did not remember the days of your youth but agitated me. And again, this is the reminder that God is very invested in a deep, vulnerable level in his relationship with us. And what we do in that relationship has an effect upon uh, him. And so you agitated me with all these things. And surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God. And you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all of your other 
uh, abominations. And indeed, God says, I'm going to make you a byword. Uh, some kind of a, a saying will be made about you uh, among the, the, in the ancient world. And indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you, like mother, like daughter. And when he says like mother, he's talking about what Jerusalem was before David conquered it with, with Joab, and it became uh, Jewish uh, property and, and the, the capital of, of the land. And he said uh, what the, the, pair, the, the great uh, adage that's going to be said, the proverb that's going to be said, is that you have become uh, just as wicked and debauched as ever Jerusalem was when it was in the hands of, of, of the pure, uh, pure pagans. And indeed, in verse 45, you are your mother's daughter, uh, loathing husband and children, and you are the sister of your sisters who loathe their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite, again speaking of Jerusalem. Your elder sister is Samaria, speaking of the northern kingdom of uh, of Israel it was taken into captivity uh, by the Assyrians long before uh, Judah went into captivity. And uh, so your older sister is Samaria, who dwells with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who dwells to the south of you, is Sodom and her daughters. God mentions, the, mentions both Samaria and he mentions Sodom in that uh, the Jews who were living in Jerusalem and in Judah at this time, uh, they were uh, so spiritually proud in the middle of all of their sin that they considered themselves far superior uh, to uh, those that were in the northern kingdom of Israel and went into captivity uh, to the Assyrians. And they certainly considered themselves superior on every level uh, to Sodom. I mean, Sodom is like uh, is that's that's a, a a proverbial word in the Old Testament. I mean, that's like that's where uh, that's where wickedness goes so out of control that God uh, even has to judge it before the final judgment. And and yet they considered themselves better than than uh, Samaria and Sodom. And the Lord is now speaking to them in the same uh, breath and telling them, "No, you are uh, no better uh, than them, and you're going to go down and." history is, is no better. When you, when, in terms of Jewish history, I mean, you have Sodom there in, in the destruction of Sodom, separate from, from Jewish history in terms of Israel being uh, in the land. But it's a, it's a terrible, terrible chapter in human history, uh, the taking of the northern kingdom of Israel. But the, the, the greatest and the thing that breaks a Jew's heart when they think about their history, was the day that Jerusalem got burned to the ground and destroyed by the Babylonians, and the Jews were displaced from their capital. And here are these Jews in here thinking they are so better than all of these other people who had been plenty bad, and they're, yet they're about to participate in what is probably the darkest blot in, in Jewish history, in that here is a generation of people who became so wicked uh, that God had to uh, 
take Jerusalem out of their hands. They caused the loss of Jerusalem. Think about that to a Jewish heart and a Jewish mind, and yet that generation did exactly that. I mean, I would never want to be a, 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 a part of, in, in human history, of, of the generation that, 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 that produced that ink blot on, uh, and stain upon, upon their history. And so the Lord uh, said, you did not, uh, verse 47, you did not walk in their ways nor act according to their abominations, but if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all their ways. As I live, says the Lord, neither your sister Sodom, and that would have been a front, your sister Sodom. I mean, that would be such an insult, and yet they couldn't see it, but they were worse. Uh, Nor her daughters have done as you, and your daughters have done. Look, this is, was the iniquity of your daughter, uh, of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, uh, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither uh, did she strengthen the hand uh, of the poor and needy, and uh, they were haughty and committed uh, abomination uh, before me. Therefore, I took them uh, away as I saw uh, fit." Just a, a moment on this, this passage before we uh, quickly finish the, the, the chapter here related uh, to uh, Sodom and the sin of Sodom. If you've ever talked with anybody, and, and if you are uh, persuaded by this particular view, I remember the first time I was confronted with it, I was, uh, had moved to Modesto, and there were uh, two homosexual men who ran a print shop downtown, and, uh, and there were a couple of people trying to witness to them from the church and all. And they took this verse out and, and they said, God did, does not condemn homosexuality at all. Uh, the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality. The sin of Sodom was uh, the, uh, their pride, the fullness of their food, the abundance of their idleness, the fact that they didn't strengthen the hand uh, of the poor and the needy, you know, as Ezekiel lays, uh, lays out. Uh, 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 here, but nothing to do with the practice of, of homosexuality. And so uh, that's, that's kind of the, the, the way that it gets handled in those that uh, want to uh, practice homosexuality and try to legitimize it uh, in, in the Bible. But, uh, but uh, to, uh, to, uh, that's a deliberate and, and uh, uh, a very poor attempt to kind of twist the scriptures here uh, to try and uh, legitimize homosexuality uh, biblically uh, the, and the idea that God doesn't uh, condemn it. Uh, the Bible, uh, this passage teaches that uh, all of these things that they had uh, lifted them up in pride, uh, the fullness of food, the abundance of idleness, all uh, that, that they had, the prosperity and all, they got lifted up in pride as, as a result uh, uh, of, of that. And then out of that pride, they committed uh, abomination. And you notice that in verse 50. And they were haughty and committed abomination. And everybody knows what the abomination is. And that was the whole city was filled with uh, militant uh, homosexuality. And, uh, uh, and, and so uh, that, that, you know, this, the, the, there was the pride and then out of the pride they committed the, the homosexuality. It does not teach that uh, these, these other things were the abomination. It teaches that all of these things led then to the practice of what is an abomination to God, and that is the practice of, of homosexuality, and it was the prosperity. 
that lifted them up in pride and then caused them to then uh, practice this sin contrary uh, to the Word of God. And so you see it all, all around the world. You see it even within our nation. And you see the, the more materially pros, uh, prosperous parts of the world or even within our, our own country. And uh, the more materially prosperous uh, parts of the world, there's this uh, clamor to uh, destigmatize and to legitimize uh, homosexuality. But you look around the world and look all the way through human history. And when uh, life is hard, uh, a living is earned by hard work and toil, and there's no uh, kind of time for uh, this kind of experimentation, this kind of nonsense, or this attempt to legitimize uh, sin. Uh, then, uh, then it isn't. It's still looked upon as a sin. And of course, we see the same thing happening in our country uh, today. We enjoy this incredible material uh, prosperity, but with that prosperity comes pride, and then out of that pride, the desire to engage in all kinds of sins that are prohibited uh, by uh, the Word of God, and then now an attempt to legitimize it by massaging uh, the Word of God. And this doesn't just have to do with homosexuality, it has to do with heterosexual sin, it has to do with uh, uh, drugs and all, all kinds of, of things. And so the result is you end up with this explosion of evil and, and, a, and a, great, a great judgment. So this, this passage is a clear condemnation of, uh, of the abomination of, that is homosexuality, and, but it gives you the roots for it, uh, where this thing starts to take hold, and, and the kind of the, the, the material and, and the intellectual arrogance and pride of Sodom that then fostered uh, this, this practice and, and supported it. Samaria, verse 51, did not commit half of your sins, uh, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they and have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you have done. And you who judge your sisters bear your own shame also because your sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. Yes, uh, be disgraced also and bear your own shame because you justified your sisters. You're worse than anything Israel was, the northern kingdom, or uh, Sodom. You say, how could they be worse than, than uh, Sodom? Because to whom much is given and much is required. Sodom was destroyed pre-Moses, pre-law. There, was, uh, there wasn't the kind of clarity uh, that they were sinning against even in Sodom. They were sinning against nature, but not against a known commandment of God like in the law of, of Moses. The, they were sinning in, in Judah, uh, sinning against both nature and, and, and against the law. And when I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters and the captives of Samaria and her daughters, then I will also bring back the, captive, uh, bring back the captives of your captivity among you. In other words, I'm going to bring them back before you because they're less sinners than you, uh, you are. And I can't bring you back into the land and be righteous without also bringing back these these that you look so down upon as greater sinners uh, when in fact they're not. So in order for me to bring you back into the land, I've got to bring them back in and I will do precisely that. That you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. 
And when your sister Sodom and her daughters return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters return to their former state, then you and your daughters will return to your former state. For your sister Sodom was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride. And before your wickedness was uncovered, it was like the time of the reproach of the daughters of Syria and all those around her and, uh, and uh, of the daughters of the Philistines who despise you everywhere. You have paid for your lewdness and your abominations, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despised, uh, as you have done, who despised the oath by breaking the covenant. And just when you think, boy, I'd sure like to hear something perky uh, at this point, uh, God gives it to them and uh, to us. He said, nevertheless, ah, boy, what a well-placed nevertheless. There's hope. I mean, there's hope even in this situation. I, there, there is no sinner in the world who has sinned so great that it's greater than the blood of Christ, greater than God's forgiveness. And no backslider who has backslidden, uh, it, 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 no matter how deeply, uh, that there isn't a nevertheless. And God is a God of second chances. He will give us a whooping, uh, but He is a God of second chances. And that's what He's going to offer to them as well. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you. You divorced me. You betrayed me. But I never abandoned my side of the covenant. I have stayed faithful to you as your husband. And I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters. For I will give them to you for daughters but not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant with you, and then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for, and then circle this next word, for all you have done, says the Lord. And God promised an atonement, an atonement, forgiveness for what they had done. Think about the forgiveness that is found in the blood of Christ. And when we get to that place that happens in a backslide and, and we're ashamed at how we have treated God in the relationship, how faithful He has been, how loving He has been, how committed He has been to us, and how shabbily we treated Him. And, uh, and, and then, uh, and then to, uh, to realize that at that point, would he ever have me back? Imagine a wife thinking that a husband would ever take her back after what she's done. And the Lord says, I'll do it. I'll do it. And I will provide on top of that an atonement, forgiveness for all that you have done. If the men will come forward and the worship team will come forward, we'll now partake of the Lord's Supper as we kind of allow this passage to meditate upon our heart.